0: The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. This week, we're heading back to that sort of modern, sort of gothic, sort of medieval, unidentified fairy tale place somewhere in Europe, where Dr. Henry Frankenstein is back to work on a new creature, a female, this time at the behest of an old colleague, Dr. Septimus Pretorius, who may have some diabolical plans of his own. Meanwhile, Frankenstein's original creature is currently at large, having survived the terrifying inferno at the old windmill and is now roaming the countryside, leaving a trail of bodies in his wake. Could a mate finally quell the rampaging monster and put an end to the destruction? Well, it's a perfect night for mystery and horror. The air itself is filled with monsters. So cozy on up to the fireplace and join us as we discuss The Bride of Frankenstein. To a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? I'll show you who I am and what I am! (laughs) You're insane. I tell you
1: I killed a wolf. A plain, ordinary wolf. By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world.
0: He went for a little walk. He could see his face. <laughs> Welcome to the Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios Classic monster series. Today we're talking about James Whale's 1935 follow-up to Frankenstein, The Bride of Frankenstein. I'm the invisible Dan Colon, and joining me, as always, is my co-host and just about the closest thing I've got to a mate on this show, Monster Mike Manzi. How are you,
1: Dan! Friend! Hey, it's good to be here. Very excited to talk about the sequel to Frankenstein.
0: Yeah, well, let's not bury the lead. You know, The Bride of Frankenstein is widely considered one of the greatest monster movies ever made, and it ranks uh, among The Godfather Part Two and The Empire Strikes Back as one of the greatest sequels ever made. In fact, many would argue that it stands alone as James Whale's career-defining masterpiece. Now, Mike, what are your thoughts on the film that Joe Dante once referred to as, quote, the crowning achievement in Universal's golden age of classic horror? Is it deserving of all that hyperbole, or do you think it's a little bit overrated?
1: Well, if you listen to our intro episode that we did, you'll know that before we started this podcast, it was my favorite of the Universal Horror movies as far back as uh, I could remember, as well as I could remember, too. And I gotta say, upon re-watching it, Yeah, I think it still holds the title. You know, I do not think that Joe Dante, uh, even though, you know, he may be uh, hyperbolic at times, I don't think that this is unwarranted. I do feel like James Wales is at the top of his game, that Universal has sort of hit a stride. Um, I was sort of referring it in the modern day to a friend as like the Marvel movies at this point where they're in phase two and it's just like expecting one a year. They're going to kick ass. I don't think that he's wrong. I love this movie. Uh, There's so much to talk about.
0: Yeah, so I've got a little bit of a complex history with The Bride of Frankenstein. I remember the first time I saw it, you know, I had been such a big fan of the original Frankenstein. I mean, that's always been my number one universal monster movie. So the first time I ever saw The Bride of Frankenstein, I was sort of unsure what to think. It's a pretty dramatic departure from the original film. I would even go so far as to say that like this is in a completely different world. Like like if you were to watch these two back to back, they don't feel necessarily like they exist in the same universe. You know, it wasn't until years later as I became more familiar with James Whale in particular and you know what this project was for him that i started to appreciate it more not necessarily like an entry in the universal monster like franchise but as a james whale film so while i still have some complex feelings on the film as a a chapter in the frankenstein uh, legacy i do think that it is maybe james whale's greatest achievement i mean we'll get into the why i have complicated feelings you know later on but yeah i think that for sure it's maybe the greatest film i've seen from james whale ever
1: yeah, there's a, a lot of interesting stuff to go over here. A lot of what you say is true because this sort of, in a lot of ways, sets up the template for sequels. Like, it reminds me of the difference between Terminator 1 and Terminator 2 as far as story and scope, where we're kind of just telling the same story. We've just expanded the scope, like we know how to make better movies right. now. We've got more shit at our disposal, like our special effects are on point, all that kind of stuff going on. And so you could feel the sequelism or sequel-itis going on with this. It's definitely upped its game. It feels bigger. Everything is way more embellished, like performances. There's a lot more comedy, right? It almost feels more in line with The Invisible Man as far as tone and tonal shifts and, and everything that was happening in that movie as well. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't think that any of those thoughts are unwarranted by any means. Like, I, I still have those same ideas about modern sequels, you know, where I'm just like, it just doesn't fit. It doesn't feel like it's exactly in line. But I also have sort of come to terms with like that's part of being a sequel in a lot of ways.
0: Like it almost to me seems as though James Whale wasn't really interested in the horror elements inherent in this story in this particular movie as opposed to the original and I think that threw me off a little bit. He's kind of sort of retelling the story we've already seen, but I find that, you know, with this one it's got a more Depth and breadth, like you were saying, he sort of expands on it in ways that I wasn't expecting. With Terminator 2, you know, you've got bigger set pieces and just bigger everything, right? Because it's James Cameron. Whereas this felt like James Whale was more interested in the psychology of what was happening as opposed to, you know, like the terror of the monster. Totally.
1: Yeah. All that's already there in the first movie, the horror stuff, like all what that implies. And they get way deeper into themes they didn't have time to explore in that first movie, like the religious stuff. Yeah. I, I agree. I think the horror of it just comes from it being sort of Frankenstein thematically I'm getting way more of a cartoonish vibe actually with some of the techniques and things going on in this you know I I saw this amazing thread on Twitter this week about classical music used in cartoons Warner Brothers and everything Uh, and I see a lot of the same stuff going on here as far as movement matching certain instruments and you know sort of embellishing movement with certain sounds and noises and stuff and I was on board with it though you know like I think all that stuff is great. Try something else with it and see what happens. And I think that all this stuff works outside of the strictly horror genre.
0: Yeah, 100%. It definitely transcends like the horror genre. But a sequel that I was thinking about that like you, you referenced Terminator 2, a sequel that this sort of reminds me of in terms of how i felt about it upon my uh, initial viewing is the last jedi i really wasn't sure what to make of what ryan johnson was doing with star wars as i was experiencing it and even for a couple days afterward i was like really wrestling with you know how i felt about it and ultimately i came down on the on the side of it's not what i expected from it and by virtue of that alone i really love it you know i love that he decided to go in a direction that i wasn't expecting and give me a movie that i wasn't anticipating he had the the guts to break from tradition so to speak and i and i see a lot of that in the bride of frankenstein as well Both movies, you know, I've grown to enjoy much more over time. Uh, It's just, you know, sort of that initial shock value, right? I feel like if filmmakers aren't going to take the risks of going in a different direction with something that we all love, we're just going to get the same sort of thing rehashed over and over and over again, as we will discover as we get through these movies. So I think that just based on James Whale's willingness to try something different with Frankenstein, that deserves a lot of accolades, you know? Like, I think just that alone. But I do believe that You know it's an incredible film however well it fits into the the greater picture you know of the universal monsters i guess with that we can just dive right in i feel like i should mention off the top this is the last movie we will be discussing under the lamley regime technically they were still in at universal for werewolf in london which we'll get to next but this was the last one that had their name on it shortly after this i think in 1936 the lamleys were sort of unceremoniously ousted from universal the reason for that being that carl lamley jr spent a lot of money on these movies. So the budget for The Bride of Frankenstein was $397,000, which was at least $100,000 more, maybe $150,000 more than Universal had originally planned. And so the budgets for these movies that he was cranking out, while they were successful, they were costing a lot of money. And during the Great Depression, Universal just didn't have enough money to keep up. After Bride of Frankenstein, Universal's like board of directors basically said, look, we can't keep spending money like this. We've got to, you know, do something about it. And so they decided they were going to take out a $750,000 loan for collateral to put up against that were the Lamley's controlling interest in Universal, right? So their their shares. And so in 1935, Bride of Frankenstein came out and that was a huge success. And in 1936, they produced Showboat, which was also directed by by James Whale and uh, even though that was a success as well it wasn't enough to really cover the losses that Universal was taking on and so the, the Lamleys just couldn't afford to stay on at Universal so yeah this is our last true Lamley production
1: yeah pretty good filmography for Junior. Something like 8 years, 18 movies or something like that.
0: Yeah, and, and what's funny is that like right before this happened, he sort of stepped down from being the general manager of production at Universal. He wasn't really interested in that job that his dad gave him. His dad, Carl Sr., took over that position again, and then Carl Jr.'s plan was to create this sort of independent production team, you know, this, this his own unit. And like that would be his little crew to go shoot monster movies for Universal. Not necessarily monster movies, but he wanted to have his own sort of like thing within universal and they were going to do six movies a year and they only got as far as showboat you know they'd made Bride of frankenstein showboat and then they just couldn't recoup the losses they were taking so that was the end of that plan junior lamley put out Tons of movies in the the short period of time that he was he was in charge.
1: Like this is a movie we need. We need the biopic of uh, the Lamley period at Universal yeah. making the horror movies. I want to see this movie.
0: Yeah, it makes me wonder what would have happened with the Lamleys had they not been making all of their films through the Depression. You know, I think that was a major factor in what happened. It's tough because
1: it it feels like, you know, they kept the studio afloat and then they were sort of shown the door. During the Depression, we can make... I don't want to call it trash, but I don't know how highbrow this stuff was considered at the cinema at the time. You know, we love it now and in hindsight, it's, you know, amazing and everything. But who knows, like, at the time what, what people were saying in social circles about this stuff. But, you know, the studio's like, we have to sort of lower our standards and make these horror movies. And then once we're out of it, once we're back in black like we can just go back to making nice films again and we can just get rid of the Lemleys and like do what we want to do again.
0: Right and and for a long time that's what those movies were, you know, even after the the Lemleys and but yeah as we'll see, you know, these productions were given smaller and smaller budgets and the 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 talent they had involved directing these movies weren't necessarily of James Whale caliber, you know, James Whale wasn't cheap yeah and
1: let's just put it this way we're gonna get way more sequels and not so many new creatures you know what i mean right Right. like that is a big part of it as well is like creatively they sort of um don't try as hard
0: right and the movies over time developed a reputation of being like kid stuff you know it wasn't taken seriously by adult audiences post Bride of Frankenstein the monsters were always there to bail out Universal I mean that's still true we, we sort of got into that I think on our introductory episode but yeah like this is sort of the end of like when I take a step back and I, and I look at you know this is where the Lamleys were ousted and I look at what we talked about you know we've covered pretty much most of the, of the heavy hitters we're going to talk about and then what we've got ahead of us is a lot of sequels not many new monsters and it's some small miracle that we ended up getting some really great amazing gems within that group you know we've got the wolf man we've got the creature from the black lagoon but they don't come until much later and i think well i mean we'll discover i mean i haven't i don't know this for sure but it feels like they were almost successful by accident maybe they just happened to to hire really talented people to make them but for the most part as we know like a lot of these are just sort of cheap sequels for kids
1: yeah and it's gonna be tough too because the market will be flooded by like other studios doing their stuff too right you know and some of that stuff might be a little better you know like they're not gonna put out the fly or the blob or any of that stuff. And it's unfortunate that those couldn't be, you know, universal monsters at the time. and So they're going to get outclassed here and there as well.
0: Yeah, and it's funny that you mentioned the fly, Mike. So I was, of course, you know, doing a little bit of research into this movie. So James Whale was like the number one choice for Universal. Uh, Carl Jr. really wanted James Whale. Somewhere in him, he knew that James Whale was the key to Universal success. Put it in sort of a modern context, James Whale is kind of like, it's like he directed the Jaws of the 1930s. Right? He had done Frankenstein he'd done the invisible man this was the guy you're gonna hire to do the bride of frankenstein and james Whale well really wasn't interested he pretty much had said he had done everything he wanted to do with the first one and like he, he had nothing left to say more or less so so in the interim period from the time junior lamley approached Whale to the time he agreed to make the movie the interim director was kurt newman who directed the fly the original fly with vincent price oh interesting That was going to be the guy who was going to do it, but of course, thankfully, you know, because of Junior Lamley being persistent, he convinced James Whale to make *The Bride of Frankenstein*, and it was sort of a um, a one for you, one for me kind of situation. In return for directing *The Bride of Frankenstein* for Universal, Universal allowed James Whale to make a movie called *One More River* in 1934. So, like, that's what kept him on. That was like romantic kind of drama film, you know, something that was much more in James Whale's wheelhouse, because I don't think he really loved being the director of monster movies, he wanted to do more like social commentary kind of stuff, which is you see you see a lot more in like the old Dark House, where it's like you know comedy of errors and manners and that sort of thing. Like that was that was what he wanted to do.
1: And you mentioned Showboat, which they'll go. That's not a horror movie at all. And they made Waterloo Bridge. That's not a horror movie. You know, they like right. James. They they've worked together in in other genres too. So uh, it is kind of strange though how how good James Whale's like aesthetic translated to sort of creating the horror genre, um, bringing with him like all the stuff from those other genres and applying it.
0: Yeah. And I think that's what makes his particular installments in these movies stand out. You know, we talk about his like cast of characters, right? All the, the sort of side characters and, and whatnot. They sort of make his films what they are. And so part of the agreement with doing bride is that he had full control. Junior Lamley had no qualms whatsoever with giving James Whale whatever he wanted to make this movie. And so that was also part of the arrangement as well. He had complete control and he would never get that again. As I said the Lamleys were sort of driven out of Universal shortly after this James Whale did make a few more films with Universal. By all accounts you know he just didn't have the freedom he had with the Lamleys. Once the Lamleys were gone he didn't really have a friend in the uh, administration so to speak and so they really came down and made all kinds of changes on his films. If you've ever seen the movie Gods and Monsters he talks about how the road back was supposed to be like his magnum opus but then the studio interfered and so like this was maybe the beginning of the For James Whale as as a filmmaker in Hollywood.
1: It's sort of like a tribute to how prolific he was that, you know, they did make a biopic out of him, right? Like he got uh, Gods and Monsters, you know? And so that's a really good movie. Everyone who's interested in his film should
0: probably seek that out. Yes, definitely. So we've got James Whale attached to the project, finally. In terms of the story, now, the scripts for this started pretty much immediately. As soon as Frankenstein became a hit in 1931, lots of people threw their hats into the ring trying to pitch their idea for a sequel.
1: I've got a quick pitch for this if I'm in the room. Let's do the rest of the book. Like, (laughs) (laughs) that's sort of what they're doing, you know? Like, memory serves in the book. Like, they go as far as to create the female creature. The circumstances are different, but it's kind of, you know in line with a lot of that. I don't think the evil Dr. Satan is there, but uh, it has been a while.
0: <laughs> yeah, so, that I mean, that's basically what happened, right? What The Bride of Frankenstein ended up being, more or less, in a very James Whale way, was utilizing the rest of the material that was in the novel. Before that, let's see, we're, we're, I'm going to go down the line here and kind of give you a little taste of, you know, what this movie could have been, who might have written it. So we know that the final script was written by William Hurlbut, and another man named Edmund Pearson, who did not get credited so i'm not entirely sure how much he contributed to the overall script and i believe james well i'm sure had a lot of say in what went into that script as well but the credits go to william Hurlbut and the story credits are william Hurlbut and our man john l balderston when he couldn't find a script he liked, James Whale went back to reliable John Balderston for a treatment, and you know, so it went John Balderston to William Hurlbut for the final script. So that's how it ended up. But almost immediately after Frankenstein was released, Robert Flory, the guy who we've discussed previously, he was in the running to direct Frankenstein, but then when they got James Whale, Robert Flory was given Murders in the Rue Morgue instead with Bela Lugosi, and he also contributed story ideas for The Invisible Man as well. So here he is again, contributing a treatment for a frankenstein sequel but according to my research it was returned without comment so i feel like robert flory is that guy who's like always a bridesmaid never a bride so yeah i have no idea what his his movie would have been but he did submit something also a newspaper man named tom reed wrote a full sequel in that sequel the monster demanded a mate which seems to suggest he was drawing from the novel a little more because remember in the novel the monster is of course much more intelligent and demands from frankenstein that he make him someone like him but uh in his version the monster also killed elizabeth to use for parts yes that's
1: the thing i misremembered from the film i could have sworn they used her in the movie as well so we'll get into it with the casting and stuff but I was uh sort of confused at some points watching it again
0: (laughs) yeah that's something that wouldn't have felt out of place in this movie or at least in this story I don't know if James Wells version of it would have worked but I think in the story he's trying to tell that definitely works as far as I'm concerned so some of the pieces from Tom Reed's script did make it into the final version of The Bride of Frankenstein I can't say, with any degree of certainty, which specific parts of it did. But I did learn that some of those elements did carry over and and make it into the film. Two men named Joseph Byrne and Martin Coyne created their own sort of visual representation of Tom Reed's script. Nothing was done with that. I assume that by visual representation, it was probably storyboards or something like that. Yeah,
1: storyboards. Do you think there were early designs for the bride? Oh, most definitely.
0: Like, I can't say, again, with any degree of certainty what other ideas and designs for the bride would have been you know we only know what ended up in the film but i have no doubt in my mind that part of the early creative process for some of these these folks uh, involved envisioning what she would have looked like so i know james whale uh, originally when he got the film he approached rc sheriff who wrote the invisible man Hoping that he would, you know, come back and write a script for *The Bride of Frankenstein*, and he turned it down. Apparently, he did not want to spend his summer writing pulp. Is what I was, was what I learned. Um,
1: Ooh, damn.
0: Yeah, right. Like almost like biting the hand that fed you, right? So. R.C. Sheriff's out. James Whale well approached two other men, Lawrence Blockman and Philip McDonald, to write their own treatments. So he, he sort of had them write two separate treatments. Blockman's treatment was sort of inspired by freaks would have been set in a carnival. I don't know a whole lot more other than that. And Philip McDonald's treatment was set more modern day and involved a death ray and and a superhuman monster. So James Whale passed on both of those treatments. And I think at that point he went to John Balderston who he knew he could trust, you know, because John Balderston had experience writing the original Frankenstein. Yeah.
1: And I feel like we got those movies in, you know, in spades, like down the line, especially in the fifties, lots of, lots of death rays and giant, mutants and things like that and stuff so we even get you know there's even a, the Toho film of Frankenstein Conquers the World where he grows to be over 100 feet tall and stuff so they do every they they end up doing everything with this guy
0: so John Balderston wrote a treatment and then that was developed into William Hurlbut's script it drew more from the original source material which is why um, you know all of those crazy ridiculous ideas were not used it's as faithful as it can be with the setup we got in the original film right what they chose to keep and, and, and not I think it's the way to go.
1: You only have a few key scenes left to actually hit that you really need and then the rest you can play around with, which they do with the new evil doctor and other things going yeah. on. Like, I think it was the right choice, not to go too crazy, to sort of, you know, keep it closer to the book.
0: It's funny that you say that, because when I think about this movie in a more broad way, I, it really is just a handful of, like, really important moments. What is it, like ten scenes?
1: An hour and fifteen minutes we're in and out, and it is seriously just the leanest meanest cuts that you need in a movie again like i feel like even more so than invisible man even though i still have like some problems with like setups and and payoffs at some points you know i have some things with the bride i wish he came in earlier but mm-hmm. but other than that I, I think you're right you know it reminds me of kubrick when he's like if you've got 11 scenes you've got a movie you know you just kind of got to think of a way to to make them all fit together
0: right exactly right so universal wasn't sure what they were going to call this movie. Bride of Frankenstein was certainly in early discussions. There was also The Return of Frankenstein. I think that might have been the earliest title possibility. But ultimately, we got The Bride of Frankenstein. And, you know, I just think that's a better title as opposed to The Return of Frankenstein. So now the, the cast, you know, James Whale, when he agreed to make this film, he envisioned it as sort of a reunion of his original cast. And so we do see a lot of the original characters here. You know, Colin Clive came back. Boris Karloff, of course, being credited only as Karloff. By that point, they only needed a last name. We've got a couple changes, though. Elizabeth is different. Of course, she was played by Mae clark in the original film unfortunately she was too ill to reprise her role
1: that's unfortunate i got a real back to the future 2 vibe from this you know what i'm (laughs) saying or like an iron man 2 where it's like someone important is different like there's something a little what's going on i didn't look into the backstory or anything like that but yeah it was noticeable but still high caliber actress like same character she portrays the same character she's still like this strong get out of the way leave my husband alone kind of person
0: I kind of disagree with you there. I was going to say that, like, to a degree, it it is very much like Back to the Future, Back to the Future Part 2, cast swap. It doesn't bother me here because I think this Elizabeth is different. I think in the original movie, that Elizabeth is more proactive. She's like, where is Henry? We have to find him. You know, she goes to his lab. Is she... Kind of interrupts his experiment but she's very much in love and supportive of him and she's a strong character i find that the elizabeth in bride is a little prone to fits she has like this vision the first scene where we really get to see her and henry together she she's like reaching for like or she's like playing to the cheap seats with this like dark vision she has and she's hysterical it just i just couldn't see mae clark doing that
1: did that return we'll get into that more but like the way i read that was she was starting to break down into madness but she kind of got she got a hold of it like she never really went there entirely but then she gets kidnapped and sort of taken out of the movie anyway I, all right i hear you
0: <laughs> this elizabeth has less agency than the original does and, and because of that i don't mind the re- cast, right? I mean, Valerie Hobson is playing a different Elizabeth to me than Mae Clark was, because if it was the same actor, if Mae Clark had had appeared in this movie, I would have been like, what happened to Elizabeth in a day? Because this movie takes place, like, right after, right? Like, they're all ready to get married, and they're in love, and everything's peachy, you know? And then the very next day, if we're to carry it over into this, like, what happened to her? So, you know, I don't mind the casting choice here. I, I wish the character was a little more developed, but I think Valerie Hobson does just fine with the role. Let's see. We have Elsa Lanchester who plays Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. She was one of several actresses that were considered for this role. So in the credits, she is only credited as Mary Shelley. Of course, at the bottom of the credits, it says the monster's mate question mark. Elsa Lanchester plays both roles, and that was a James Whale idea. He thought, like, if someone as like sort of seemingly innocent and, and beautiful as Mary Shelley could write a story like Frankenstein, that there must be some kind of monstrous side to her as well. So, like, that was the thinking.
1: I love the choice. That's pretty funny. I love the choice. I mean, technically, I guess Shelley's the mom of Frankenstein, but, like, it still sort of, like, works in a sideways kind of reference. Like, I like the concept that, like, the character playing the creator is playing the wife kind of thing. And it's really cool to tie her to, like, that whole thing that they tie, like, they bring in the Shelley's and Lord Byron and all that like that's a really great sort of opening and then to bring her back all the way at the end of the movie as the monster like it's a nice callback in a way you know there's something very nice and like nice and tight about it just with her as an actor being there at the beginning and then showing up again at the end
0: right but she of course was not the the original actor considered at least the the role of the bride I'm not sure where the, this is on the timeline, right? I know it was James Whale's idea to make the role a dual role, but I do know that a couple actresses were considered for the bride, which may have meant both. It may have just meant the bride, but the bride could have been played by Brigitte Helm, who you may be familiar with from Metropolis. She plays Maria. So she, like she could have played that part. And also um, a model named Phyllis Brooks was considered.
1: The Metropolis thing is—they're um, they, basically doing that in this movie anyway. So that might have been a little too on the nose to be like, let's just get the original pers- from the the person from the original movie in which they made a woman and brought her to life out of nothing. And you know, like there's sort of like parts of this. I mean, you know, Frankenstein was written before Metropolis, so it's that is sort of a takeoff on Frankenstein to begin with. So you know, I'm just saying, like there's an interesting kind of perpetual like borrowing and and remaking kind of of thing with all this material that i really enjoy
0: so minnie and the burgomaster these these specific roles in this film were specifically written for uno o'connor and ee clive our boy ee clive from the invisible man
1: yeah who's a different burgomaster from the first movie or he
0: lost a lot of weight overnight right and
1: grew a fantastic mustache
0: Yeah, so obviously Minnie was a new character created for this story, but the Burgermaster had been played by a different actor in the original Frankenstein, but at this point, James Whale was just like, I'm making this movie however I want to make it. I want to use my, my stable of actors. And so... E. e. Clyde was brought in to play the Burgermaster in this.
1: I love the concept that Una O'Connor, who's playing Minnie, like, she was always there in the background, right? Like, and, and it wasn't yep. until right now, like, she finally, like, kind of spoke up and it was like, alright, everybody, like, nothing to see here and all this stuff. Like, <laughs> it's a great addition. Like, again, it, it might not feel like a direct sequel to Frankenstein, but it feels like a sequel in spirit to, like, The Invisible Man in a lot of ways, you know? Like, it's got a lot of those actors are coming over a lot of the spirit yep. of that is being injected into this movie.
0: Yeah, I mean if you if you consider the fact that James Whale was a, an extremely accomplished theater guy you know, and you think of it that way, like where The Invisible Man was one of his productions, The Bride of Frankenstein is another production. If you think of it in theatrical terms, you know, it's it's no different than what happens on stage. It's just, this is a movie. And he even treats this like a play in a lot of ways. Uh, with the way he dresses the set, and uh, there's some camera movements that, like in The Invisible Man, sort of like the camera pans through walls into other rooms. So yeah, I, I mean, I, I very much think of James Whale films in particular as kind of glorified stage productions. So yeah, I, I love that he's got his his like stable of people. We've got a new character in this, Dr. Pretorius, who I mentioned at the top of the show. He is sort of our villain and what we usually think of as like Dr. Frankenstein, right? In other versions of Frankenstein, you know, you get this raving mad scientist character I, I would say that you know the hammer productions of frankenstein definitely lean into this maniacal sort of evil version of frankenstein in a way the universal doesn't but yeah so we have dr pretorius who is played by ernest thesiger who some people may remember from the old Dark House. He plays uh, a character in that. He's one of the greatest performers in that film. And he's wonderful here as well.
1: Yeah, I love the energy he brings. I feel like I get this character showing up in a Universal Monster movie. Like, I think he fits within the Universal canon. Like, I could see him going up against Van Helsing, you know? Like, like almost like how uh, Professor Farnsworth has, like, his rival in Futurama or something like, you know, Wormstrom or something. Like, it's just like, they show up at the seminars and they see each other and it's just like oh my god it's like van helsing and his do-gooding science and then it's like ah that freaking dr pretorius or whatever like in his black magic Like he's going to go up there and talk fake science again and stuff (laughs) like it's great character. It's a great evil scientist. And you're right. He ups the game to say, like, you know, if you thought Frankenstein was bad, like this is this is sort of the guy he like he went and uh, studied under after in the last movie. Right. I think that's sort of like the idea. And like this guy is no joke. It's funny. (laughs) He's just out of his mind.
0: (laughs) Like Henry seems even more sane to me. When you put him next to Dr. Pretorius. I, I defended Henry a little bit when we talked about Frankenstein. You know, he he has his moments of mania in hysteria. You know, he certainly has that. But I've always I always took him as sort of a guy who seemed very sane, had high ambition. I mean, it's only in this movie where talk of like a whole race of, you know, creations is brought up, right? And that's because of Dr. Pretorius. Yeah, Henry, I mean, he looks so worn out here, Colin Clive. So part of that I think was his own personal life i know he he had a severe battle with alcoholism for much of his life and he did die two years after this was released so i wonder how much he was acting here truly but i mean next to ernest thesiger's dr pretorius he definitely seems almost neutered as a character which i think is by design you know we, we've spent plenty of time with henry now's the time for dr pretorius to come in and shine Thesiger's just a master at playing this big, broad character. And he gets so much incredible dialogue. You know, his diction is wonderful. Yeah, I love all of the choices he makes here with this character.
1: Yeah, I've never heard anyone pronounce wizard the way that he does at one point, where he's like, they tried to burn us at the stake like wizards. Like what did he just say? Yeah, he's great. He's like this perfect sort of Faustian, devilish, mischievous, even like Loki-esque type of villainous character. That to be honest, it's like that kind of. Nowadays, it just seems very obvious, but, like, it was missing from Frankenstein, you know? I think, like, mm-hmm. that's part of what made it unique, but it's also something you need to do when you're doing the sequel. You got to show, like, okay, we need another, like, a, like you got to pump everything up. Like, instead of, like, now we got the T-1000, we got the guy who trained Frankenstein, right? Like, that guy's got to be even crazier.
0: Yeah, and he definitely plays it that way. He's definitely crazy, but I love the way he plays it in such a way that he's got a sophistication to him that almost betrays his his crazy right yeah
1: he's like he's reveling in it like he knows he's mad and he almost seems to have like a grasp of it i think that's part of it right like in a super villain kind of way he's like i know i'm nuts but at least like i know that i know like frankenstein yeah, not right. frankenstein couldn't handle the truth but like i can and like now i'm gonna like sort of weaponize it and do damage.
0: (laughs) But Ernest Thesiger was not the first person considered to play Pretorius. The role had been written for Claude Rains.
1: No way. Well, you couldn't do that. This guy is kind of aping that performance a little. Like, it feels a little inspired by The Invisible Man. Yeah,
0: and I could definitely see Claude Rains playing the role. I think it would have been a little too similar to his performance in The Invisible Man. So I'm glad that it didn't go down that road. But yeah, so it was originally written for Claude Rains, Uh, I'm not exactly sure why he didn't end up doing it. He may have turned it down. He may have been replaced. I'm not totally confident about that, but I know that he did end up doing The Mystery of Edwin Drood instead. And then later in his career, Claude was offered a role in The Son of Frankenstein, which he turned down because it was a horror film. So I think he had gotten a taste of stardom and and wanted to, to move on to more legitimate work. But he is not done. We are not done with Claude Rains in this universe just yet. And also, it's rumored, so I don't know how much truth there is to this. This could be complete hearsay, but I did see it somewhere. It was rumored that Bella Lugosi was also offered that role of Dr. Pretorius.
1: I could see that very well. Like, I could almost see the actor maybe looking at some Lugosi reels for, like, inspiration or something like that. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, and
0: when I think back now, like, in hindsight, when I've seen Lugosi play, you know, kind of mad scientist characters, I mean, specifically, I could could cite Murders in the Rue Morgue. As an example, you know, I think he was definitely capable of playing Dr. Pretorius. And and I almost like there's a part of me that wishes he had only because I know what happened to Bela Lugosi's career in a few short years. You know, we we know where he ends up. But
1: but also I was thinking watching this, this guy hangs out in the crypts. He's got his long black cloak. Mm -hmm. He loves the Mm -hmm. night. Like there's so many allusions to being a vampire for this dude that I'm not sure he isn't a vampire by the end.
0: (laughs) So, there's a couple other characters I want to touch on, real quick. Of course, we have Dwight Fry returning as Carl.
1: Well, he's not returning as Carl. He is now playing Carl. Which is weird that we have so many recasts, but now we got an actor back and we got to come up with a new character for him because we killed off Fritz.
0: Right, yeah. I mean, he's returning to the the James Whale cast of characters, but right, he's not playing Fritz. He's playing Carl, but he actually is playing a role that had been condensed from four roles.
1: Whoa, four roles? Is that why Carl's only four-letter word? But seriously, how do we get from Fritz to Carl to eventually what everybody knows as Frankenstein's assistant, Igor. Like, no one knows there was a Carl. This is mind-blowing Jeopardy kind of trivia here.
0: (laughs) So he was sort of like a um composite, like he was he was a couple characters in that were in the script that were sort of distilled down to one character, and he was gonna play all of them. So one of the characters, of course, was Carl. One of them was I think Ghoul number one, which really was just in that scene in the crypt with Pretorius.
1: Just grave robbing. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So there's that scene. He also was playing Fritz. I don't know if in some version of the script, they just decided Fritz was back.
1: He was hanged in the first movie. So maybe because of his humpback, like his neck didn't completely snap. Like they were just trying to figure out how to do it. And it like, finally threw their arms up in the air. It was like, forget it.
0: <laughs> yeah. As far as I know, Fritz was a character at some stage and he was sort of made into Carl. And then the fourth character that Dwight Fry would have played was uh, a guy named... His character's nephew, Glutz. And his only real role within this film was to play somebody who he murdered his uncle and then blamed the monster.
1: Oh, weird.
0: You can see pieces of that character in the movie. Like when the monster breaks free and rampages through the town, you can see Dwight Fry in a small cluster of people. And that would have been his character, Glutz. But they just cut a lot of that material out after the fact. That is such a
1: crazy little B story to have going on. It Like, that is a premise for an entire movie where there's, like, a murderer on, the like, a serial killer and some guy kills his uncle and blames it on the serial killer. Like, I want that whole movie with that guy. And it's so funny because I was actually keeping tally, like, the monster kills, like almost 10 people in this it is the perfect cover and be like mm, i've always wanted to take care of my uncle and then just like blame it on the monster wow that's dark
0: it's got a very hitchcock quality to it you know when you put yeah. it that way you know so if only halford hitchcock had directed a monster movie that could have been his monster movie
1: Well, The Birds is probably the closest he came to a, quote-unquote, monster movie. Yeah. You know, Psycho. Okay, like, Norman's a monster, right? But, like, The Birds is probably the closest. And, uh, you know, he saw all these movies and was just probably blown away by them.
0: Oh, definitely. He was making movies at this time, don't forget. So the only other character I really want to touch on is O.P. Heggie, who plays the Hermit. And the reason he's significant is because James Whale was so insistent on having him be part of this movie that he put the production on hold for 10 days so that Heggie could wrap up a film he was working on, a film called Chasing Yesterday at RKO. Whale had his sights set on him, wanted him for this movie. And as you know, a a 10-day hold on a a film is a a lot of time. They're paying to sit still at that point.
1: Yeah, that's throwing your weight around. That's when someone told you you have complete control. Like, that's what that means, you know? And thank goodness because it's one of the most incredible scenes in film history. Like, this is one of those scenes that is just, like, amazing. So I'm so glad that he got it his way.
0: Oh, definitely. And one more casting note. So the actor who plays Percy Bish Shelley is uh, an actor named Douglas Walton. To my knowledge, he's not super significant. However, the role was almost given to somebody you may know. It was almost given to David Niven. Dude, no way. Yeah, that was a possible role for David Niven. This
1: is going to sound... Crazy, but I was thinking of him for some reason in that opening because it felt like it was shot by Michael Powell, who he worked with a lot. Yep. That felt a lot like his sort of look and style and something he might have done in a movie of his. So it's really, it's just weird that it's like on that wavelength. I don't know why but like that's cool. I could have seen that.
0: Yeah, definitely. Just a few more credits here I want to get to. We've got John P Fulton back in the fold. He was he was in charge of all the photographic effects in The Invisible Man. He of course was in charge of all the uh effects in The Bride of Frankenstein. Charles D Hall has returned as the art director. Kenneth Strickfadden also back on board, you know, creating all of the lab equipment and Jack Pierce. So Jack Pierce of course did the makeup for most of the Universal monsters He designed, with James Whale, he designed the Frankenstein monster. And uh, I don't know if you could tell, but he adjusted his work in this film.
1: Yes, you could definitely see that there's damage to the creature, like, uh, the fire burned him, like, I think it fused a couple of his fingers, like, it burned off his eyebrows, and I think it was a perfect opportunity to sort of reconfigure the makeup to be more functional and a little more, to work with it a little better, like, he's gonna be talking in this one, so we gotta make sure that nothing falls off his face or anything, so let's have less stuff on him, maybe, but I liked that, I liked how, like, he felt like he was evolving, like, you know, he was he was gaining battle damage throughout the movie.
0: Yes, and and, he, and the monster does evolve over the course of the film. He starts to heal. I don't know if you noticed that. I mean, he he starts off pretty rough. We notice a lot more of those, like, staples in his head than there were in the original film. His hairline is all, you know, burned off. He's got a, a burn on his cheek. He is fuller in the face. I mean, it's, that's, that's due to two things. Because they needed the monster to speak, Karloff did not remove the dental appliance that he had, which he removed for the original film. So Jack Pierce had to sort of go in with makeup and, and kind of give him that sort of sunken cheek look again which if you remember from uh, like future Frankenstein films the monster ends up looking like he has like a big beauty mark on his cheek right like I think it's all because of just trying to keep this one thing consistent so he starts off pretty pretty worse for wear because of the fire at the windmill but he does start to heal over the course of the film which I thought was really interesting because you think for something like this that's only an hour and 14 minutes it's an incredible amount of attention to detail that I, I may not have otherwise thought they would have put in
1: Yeah, I mean, they don't put that much attention to detail into modern films because, like, you know, you have to track all that in continuity. And if you're shooting out of order, it's a living nightmare. So I almost wonder if that was part of the luxury is that they were shooting in order and so that they could do something more elaborate like that. Or if not, they're just really super precise filmmakers.
0: The Bride's look was co-created by Whalen Pierce as well. Oh, so good. Yeah, James Whale especially he wanted the hair to resemble Nefertiti. Oh, okay. He wanted that sort of Egyptian mummy look which wow. is why her her body is fully wrapped as opposed to carlos body.
1: you know what i always attributed her hair to was the electricity it looks like you stick your finger in the socket and it blows your hair out and stuff but you know once you say that it makes so much more sense that's amazing how they both work together how it works on so many levels
0: yeah i don't think you're wrong i mean i think that was definitely the thinking in part with her look i mean that's why it's teased up and it stands you know it has the white streaks on the side i definitely get that part of it but i think in a more abstract sense they were kind of going for like an egyptian look i don't really know why but i think it works beautifully
1: yeah and i think we you know i think just the mummy like the wraps and stuff it's just there's something very cinematic about it like not only did we see it for a minute in the mummy but the invisible man wore wraps too you know and and to see him here again it's kind of cool to to be like this thing that keeps carrying over exactly yeah, I love this design. I think this is like simplicity at its best. You just have like a vision. You don't try and go too far with it. It's something so easy yet so striking. Like I'm in love with. Like this is something I would get like a Bride of Frankenstein tattoo. I love the uh, imagery so much. You know, like yeah, it's so
0: and it's so iconic, right? So I watched the movie with my girlfriend and. She had never seen it and she really liked it. But at the end she was like, wait, that's it. Like, that's like, that's all we get of the bride. And I'm like, I, and I, I know like she's only, in, she's not even in the movie for five minutes, but she's this incredibly iconic character. She's like, when you see artist renderings of the universal monsters, she's always included. And it's just because of the strength of that, you know, four minutes and change, she just makes such an impression. And it's all because of, of James will and, and, and Jack Pierce.
1: And, you know, for better or worse, like it, Last throughout history to the point where you get like weird science right which is a weird pseudo sequel to this movie where it's like what happens after with the bride you know (laughs) right (laughs) if two teenage kids instead of these middle-aged scientists yeah it's definitely that so in fact that was that was going to be my answer to like when did the bride of frankenstein first sort of like come into sort of my frame of reference or anything like i think it was sort of going back i mean seeing weird science and then finding out where that came from.
0: I didn't get too much into like frames of reference for, for this particular character because she's only in it for such a short period of time, and, and really the movie is Karloff's to, to a great degree. But, you know, I think I mentioned Lily Munster. Even though she's a vampire, I think she kind of draws from the bride look quite a bit.
1: Yeah, you know, a big one in my, in my childhood, another sort of giant presence that was there that I was very attracted to was uh, Elvira, you know, Cassandra Peterson. Oh, sure. Even though it's not entirely based on the bride, like generations sort of apart it is right like that sort of comes from Vampira, which sort of comes from Morticia which sort of comes from the bride so like there's a family tree there that just keeps growing
0: couple more things i want to get to in terms of the overall production you talked about counting the deaths there were only 10 deaths in this film
1: but lots of on-screen death
0: yeah this film was really taken apart by the censors by this point we're, we're like full haze code era and now movies can't get away with things they could get away with just a couple years prior
1: Even though this movie still gets away with a lot.
0: Yes, it really does. It's incredible what was allowed to stay in. But there were originally 21 deaths. Wow. In the script. And the lead censor at the Hayes office, Joseph Breen, cut out all but ten. I, I saw a quote somewhere. James Whale, as he was making the movie and, the, you know, they're, they're bringing up these concerns. He said, quote, kill them all, let Breen sort it out.
1: Oh, so they actually shot them all? Did they end up shooting all that stuff?
0: As, as far as I know, they absolutely could have. There's a scene in the beginning of the film when they are sort of recapping, you know, the events of the first film. There's a moment where the monster strangles angles like a gypsy oh right yes it's not from the first movie that man is later in the movie when he when the, the monster comes across that sort of like gypsy camp. They just repurposed that footage and put stuck it in the recap. So it's possible that they had shot a lot of that. Maybe the um the deaths were cut out at the script level, you know, before they even got to shooting. Yeah. But James Well had every intention of just sort of throwing everything at the screen and leaving it up to the censors, you know, for what could stay, what couldn't. He was so disinterested in making this movie that he was just going to like kind of have fun with it and and do kind of whatever and and part of that was going to be just like deaths all over the place but he only got 10
1: you say like only got 10 it's like he still got 10 is <laughs> the way i look at it part of it too is this movie starts off as like straight as almost a comedy and there's like yep. murder immediately but then there's like lots of like jokes and like very obvious humor stuff but by the end it becomes a very serious movie again you know like all that stuff gets burned off by the end of the movie I feel like once we get past the blind man in the cabin scene like it is not funny anymore You know, like everything is to be taken
0: seriously again. For sure. Before we move on in terms of censorship, uh, I know that there was a lot of stuff that was cut out of this movie for religious reasons. Like I said, it's amazing what stayed in because there's a lot of religious imagery in here. But, you know, just like in the first film, I think we talked about that before, they had cut out certain or changed certain lines of dialogue because they were blasphemous and the whole idea of a man trying to play God was offensive to people at the time. So they tried to tone that down in this case again whale sort of had everything dialed to 11 and you can see what made it through like so much made it through but definitely a lot of stuff was cut out for those reasons for pretty much the same reasons they didn't want to sort of make references to man playing god and certain pretorius lines were changed there's a line pretorius talks about he he references uh bible stories and like if you know if you still believe in bible stories and i think the line was originally fairy tales but i think people were afraid that the public would rebel against this idea that bible stories were fairy tales
1: Ah, oh, it's interesting because you could tell that there are things that he couldn't remove like he did some stuff where it's like well they could complain all they want but it can't be taken out like there's like especially in pretorius's lab where he like creates a whole little scenario with the church and the devil and the king and the queen and mm-hmm, everything mm-hmm. it's like that is super uncalled for by the censors, but there's (laughs) there's no way you could cut that scene. You know what I mean? Like you're stuck with it. So it becomes probably part of like a compromising battle or something.
0: Right. right. I think playing it for comedy definitely helped. So 15 total minutes were cut out altogether. And that was for the blasphemy that I referred to and some of the violence, but also because of that opening scene. Apparently they were, they were showing too much of Elsa Lanchester's chest. So get Howard Hughes in there to argue this, please you know if you've
1: ever seen the aviator he's got the perfect argument for cleavage in a film
0: yeah so i mean 15 minutes overall i think the movie could have been about an hour and a half but they whittled it down to an hour and 14 so this is what we're left with of course not to mention a lot of the um homosexual subtext in the film which we can touch on so i think yeah i think that's a good spot to segue into the movie itself Okay. So the movie does begin pretty much exactly where the first one left, at least in terms of like the windmill. But we get a little like prologue, right? Yeah. The very first scene is like a a castle and a storm, right? Like we think we're going to be heading back into Frankenstein's lab, but we don't. We end up hanging out with Lord Byron and Mary Shelley and her common law husband, Percy. Percy Shelley and Lord Byron were, of course, very famous English poets at the time. And and in, in this, they're kind of played like dandies, which I thought was pretty funny.
1: Yeah, so like when I first saw this, it blew my mind because you know I didn't never seen the movie before. This not this viewing, but when I first saw this, right, I was like, I can't believe they're doing this prologue and all this stuff. This is this is amazing, and I love it again this time too. But I don't know what is going on here because like it's sort of referencing the night of the famous bet where it was a dark and stormy night and they were all sort of trapped in their summer vacation castle, you know, and they had a bet, and it was like who could tell the scariest ghost story you know and she won but that's not what's happening here because they're referencing that night they're like oh it's another dark and stormy remember that dark and stormy night Mary where you scared the pants off of all of us oh who would have ever thought a woman would have written better than a man and it's like oh my god I love this stuff
0: yeah and you know what's uh, what's interesting I didn't know that the three of them had like I didn't, like, I didn't know this scene was based in any kind of reality oh, that those three yeah, had okay. known each other and like I didn't know that that's how Frankenstein became uh, a novel.
1: Yeah, and Lord Byron even, right? He's uh, somewhat responsible for the vampire legend. Like, I think he wrote, he wrote like one of the early vampire stories or something.
0: Yeah, and so like, I I love this scene and we think we know what we're going to get. And James Whale is like immediately saying, no, we're going to do something else. We're doing what I want to do. And yeah, we get this really great scene and Elsa Lanchester is great in it. You know, she seems like totally unassuming and very sweet and like, but also wise beyond her years, right? like she definitely seems like she's got some some cards close to the chest if you understand what I mean. And and so I love that the, the story or that the movie begins with this scene that it basically establishes she's not done. She's got more story. So
1: this is something that I feel movies struggled to do forever and this does perfectly is the recap. Like, you know, this is like Every Friday the 13th movie, right? Where it's yeah. like yep. you ever hear the story of Jason Voorhees and like doing the greatest hits and kills and everything? Like that come does that come from this? I don't know if this is the first sequel to recap the movie that came before it, but it does it so well with this prologue and working it in and being like, oh, the crazy tale of the Frankenstein and tell us what's next. Like, what happened after that? You know, what's the story after the story thing? Such a great setup. I'd be
0: surprised if the filmmakers behind Friday the 13th didn't draw from this on some level. I mean, by part six, he is resurrected with lightning and becomes basically a frankenstein monster
1: yeah true yeah and i'm shocked that there was never a, a girl jason or a girl freddy or anything like that right <laughs> when did that ever happen i mean we got the fem- we got the chucky got kind of a bride the bride of bride of chucky <laughs>
0: yeah i was going to say we got bride of chucky yeah after this little prologue we go right back to that burning windmill the windmill has collapsed the entire town has surrounded it they're all pretty sure the monster's dead they carry henry's body back to his home and the the sort of looky losers are are still hanging around hoping to get a glimpse of the monster and that's when our boy ee clive as the burgomaster is like all right everybody go home you know there's nothing to see here nothing to see and like his chemistry with uno o'connor here is so good you know like i mean it carries over from the invisible man yeah it makes me
1: wonder. It makes me feel like it could have even be the same sort of town or the same area or Almost, like they, yeah. they heard from the next town over that there was also an incident and let's go check it out kind of situation
0: <laughs> right but i i do like ee e. clive's Burgomaster a little better i think he's more um he's more competent i think
1: oh right right yeah yeah
0: you know you, you don't you don't have baron frankenstein in this sort of undermining him and making fun and turning him into a joke
1: oh that's right he's totally gone isn't he the the
0: baron has been taken out of the script and so has victor if you remember victor
1: oh right barely
0: I think there's a case to be made for the Baron working for this tone, you know, like, cause he was kind of the, comedic relief of the first film and I think he he could have worked within the framework of of this one but for whatever reason uh, he was taken out and Victor was just such a drip I don't think he would have served this type of story as well I don't think
1: either of those characters would have survived the movie to be honest like they're probably on the cutting room floor because their body counts right
0: and and even Pretorius makes reference to the Baron maybe not surviving the wedding night because he refers to Henry as Baron Frankenstein yeah so we don't have them we have a a much more competent Burgomaster and as the townspeople are sort of making their way back to their homes Hans who is the father of the little girl Maria who was drowned in the in the original film now this is a different actor I you know I, I was like this guy doesn't look like the original guy it is in fact a different actor and now we have his wife as well and they're sticking around because they need to know that this thing's dead and so Hans climbs down into this like pit He climbs down there himself, and while he's wading through the the remains, like the water, the monster comes out of the shadows and strangles him to death. This
1: poor damn family. Like, they're they're out looking for their daughter's killer, and the dad gets basically drowned like she did (laughs) he's strangled in a pool of water
0: yeah and like he's such a um you know such a sympathetic character in that first film like you just feel for him carrying his dead daughter's body through the town like all of that goes away like he is just here to he's he's just another body to stack on top of the pile right
1: and then his poor wife doesn't last much longer either like this whole this whole family's doomed
0: right and so as the monster after the monster kills hans he climbs up out of the out of the hole and then throws hans's wife down there with him which not a stunt technically but still kind of funny in the way it's executed because you know, it's clearly a doll
1: but uh, also this is like a straight up joke like this is what sort of threw me a little bit because I don't remember it being so whiplash. is like you know we had Minnie going like everybody you know everybody away whatever like she's here she's kind of funny and then there's a murder right? Hans is strangled to death. Then the Frankenstein monster is actually helped out of the pit by Hans's wife because she doesn't know it's Hans and then she like turns around and sees the monster and the monster like freaks out and throws her down the pit and she dies. It's like this weird sort of comedy of error sort of like chain reaction. Uh, it's very cartoonish in my mind like it just has that rhythm of a, of what would come to be very much like what you see in cartoons where where she does everything but look right at the camera right and gulp like really hard <laughs>
0: I know that Whale was very much leaning into camp and was kind of going for more parody, like a burlesque version of Frankenstein. So it would would surprise me to discover that that moment wasn't meant to be funny on some level. And then of course we get Una O'Connor who has no idea the monster's standing right behind her and she does that slow turn and the scream, you know, like she's back to doing exactly what we loved her for in The Invisible Man, which I love. And so she runs back to, you know, the House of Frankenstein back in town where nobody believes her that the monster's still alive. And I'm thinking were you guys not here like 30 minutes ago? Like why would nobody believe that this monster's alive?
1: Yeah, if Henry survived.
0: Well, he had, we don't know that yet.
1: Okay, so okay. If people in general can survive being like set on fire and live, like definitely this monster can take fire. Like, you know, it's gonna take a lot more than something, than a windmill falling on this thing to get rid of it. There's no reason they shouldn't believe that it's still out there in some capacity.
0: Of course, nobody stopped to get confirmation, so they all just believe she's crazy. And of course, uh, Henry Frankenstein at this point is still presumed dead. They bring him to his home, uh, Elizabeth is there to receive him. I, I kind of saw it as like a mirrored, like a sort of a distorted mirrored image of the original film. Like his hand starts to move while he's under the sheet. And, you know, we realize, oh, Henry's still alive. So we get a little bit of a change from the ending of the original film. If you remember, they, they sort of tacked on that epilogue with the Baron and the other actor playing Henry through the, the bedroom door. We can sort of forget all of that. It's almost as if none of that ever happened. So Henry is back. He's alive and he's bedridden, kind of being nursed back to health by Elizabeth. Yeah, this is going to gonna
1: establish the new Elizabeth actor for me this whole scene where it's like all right by the end of this I'll get used to her
0: and this is the scene I'm sort of talking about where I think she is like over acting in a way that just doesn't jive with the original Elizabeth yeah it's
1: one of the setups that they don't sort of keep around much like this is where Frankenstein or Henry is sort of talking about you know I've got this formula like I should try this again I know how to do it maybe do it better this time I can build an entire race we have eternal life God chose me and all this what I thought happened was it set off Elizabeth being like oh shit like he's he's not better like he hasn't learned and she starts to kind of lose it too in a way and she's like I see a darkness I see a specter behind you everywhere I look there it is there it is And then it never comes back. It's just gone. They just drop it. And I was like, man, like, I kind of wish she had a journey of her own that we could chart, right? It would be kind of, because that kind of makes sense. Like, if you were married to Frankenstein, it would probably drive you crazy to a degree. (laughs) You know, you'd start (laughs) saying and seeing some crazy shit if your husband or your spouse uh, brought the dead back to life. Like, if if you saw that with your own eyes, it might mess you up i don't
0: doubt that the toll that sort of a thing would have on a person right i think that elizabeth would have gotten there eventually my only real issue is that if i'm believing that this is like the same day as the you know from the original movie this is a very sharp left turn into crazy town it's like how did she have time to process everything that's happened
1: well, maybe that's the thing, you just, you don't have, your mind doesn't have time to catch up on itself, so it's in continually trying to make sense of what's happening, and you can't or something, and it was a very long and trying day. I mean, it was her wedding day, and uh, it turned into a murder spree.
0: That's true. She did get attacked. I can't forget that. Okay, so maybe. But still, tonally, it seems a little bit inconsistent for me. But again, I I like the casting change here. I think it works. Like, he's, he's really battling within himself, you know, about the work he was doing. Should he continue? Like, should he renounce it forever as he's wrestling with these ideas. And as Elizabeth is having her like sort of hysterical moment, Dr. Pretorius arrives and there's a really great moment in this. And I just want to highlight Uno O'Connor for a second Uh, as he's banging on the door and banging on the door and it's dark inside the house. And Uno O'Connor has like the, the candle and she's rushing to the door and she makes a Well, she's not making a joke, but the line is meant to be funny where she's like, all right, all right. You know, we're not all dead yet. We hear the name Pretorius like five times in the span of like two minutes right like he introduces himself she repeats the name two or three times and then she announces him to henry frankenstein and elizabeth finally the two are back together and we learn pretorius is a former professor for henry frankenstein and possibly where frankenstein was set on this path i don't think they ever explicitly say it but we can infer that from their relationship and pretorius is really interested in getting frankenstein back in the saddle, you know, and getting him back to work. He's heard the news. He's like, I've
1: seen what you've done. Also, when he enters, they may as well be playing the villain's theme. It's like dun, 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 dun. Uh, Dr. Pretorius. It's like he's coming in like creeping like sneaking in like I love his entrance. It's so dramatic and it's sweeping and like he he's in command. Yeah, it's great how I mean, he comes up and he's like, "You did it. We got to we got to join forces because like what you did and what I'm working on like we're definitely going to take over the world. Like there's no question about it. Like we are going to have an army of the dead. In fact, I'm not sure. I think this guy figured out cloning to some degree. We'll get there in a minute or two but, like, these guys are on some next-level shit.
0: Oh, for sure. And it's funny that you mentioned the music. I meant to mention this earlier when I was kind of going through, like, the -the behind-the-scenes aspects of this production. One thing that I I love about this movie, uh, independent of the acting and 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 a lot of James Whale's contributions, is the score. This has a full score, more full than any film we have gotten thus far. The Mummy was the first movie with real original music. We had The Invisible Man, which has a a few minutes of original music that was was written for it. But with The Bride of Frankenstein, we get a Full score. It was composed by Franz Waxman, and it's very Wagner-esque in that it reminds me of almost like of of an opera. He definitely wrote a few different motifs for the monster, for the bride, and for Pretorius. It's totally by design that like Pretorius has. Like sort of nefarious villain music when he enters a room. Yeah, this feels like sound films
1: are being like figured out really well at this point where it's like, okay, now we know how to sort of put the soundtrack on the film properly and we could do everything, you know, like we're getting the, we're mastering sound in film now because like what else is cool about the music in this is like it's kind of going to stop and just give us a nice little violin performance. And I was just thinking like people at the time might not have been exposed to people playing the violin and this was probably the first time they might have seen something like you know like that's what was sort of nice and educational about sound and pictures and stuff like that was like you could hear this music you've never heard in your entire life and maybe you never would have because of where you lived so like yeah I'm really impressed by all the music stuff going
0: on. Pretorius really like again is trying to get Frankenstein to join him and like join forces and get back to work creating life. He sort of tempts Frankenstein out of his home by offering to show him some of his own experiments and so they go to Pretorius's home where he shows him some of his experiments. Now, his experiments are a bit unusual. I will admit this is sort of where Bride lost me a little bit in my first viewing. Remember I said like certain parts of it just really like I just didn't understand what the hell was happening. And for a long time, this might be the thing that I hung on to as like, Why? You know, like I I couldn't understand it. I couldn't get my head around it. Pretorius, he brings up this box filled with like these glass. Yeah, they're not quite bottles, but they're like, I don't know what to refer to them as.
1: Like cylinders. They're like these glass cylinders.
0: Right. And so his experiments in creating life involved creating these like tiny little people. He created a queen, which of course meant he had to create a king. And then he created a, a cleric and a devil, I think a ballerina and a mermaid, a little miniature mermaid. Yeah. Yeah. And- I I just didn't know how this was meant to fit within the framework of this story. You know, I I would see it for years and, and be like, this isn't scientific. This is magical. And even Frankenstein himself says, this is like, this is more like black magic. So at least he says it, right? Like as I've gotten older and as I've gotten more experienced with these films and James Whale and what he's doing with this particular film, I'm relieved that Henry calls it out and says, this isn't science. This is more like black magic. But still, as a sequel to Frankenstein, it feels weird to put these elements in here.
1: Yeah, I don't totally disagree with that. Like, I still have feelings where I'm watching this now and I'm like, it's a little off. There's something kind of like they could have maybe done better here with the ideas that they're trying to explore now I see two things when I'm watching this today the first thing is they really want to use this special effect somehow like we figured out tiny people on screen they're going to make a movie called the devil dolls at one point uh, is going to get made out there about tiny people running around like this and stuff and so it feels to me like you know the opposite of the invisible man where it's like these special effects are going to run the story in this scene and that's always a little off you know there's something kind of like "Mm, that's a little backwards like it should be the other way around but i feel like it's part of maybe they didn't exactly know how to express their ideas the way they might have wanted to like the way i feel like this is to me is like this doctor's figured out how to clone stuff like, he mentions he grew these things, you know? Like From seed, yeah. Yeah, yeah, from seed, from sperm, right? Like, that's what I thought, like, from an egg sure. and sperm, you know? Like, it just, they can't say
0: that. Yeah, did he maybe do some kind of early in vitro fertilization but like almost almost like a bonsai tree where he grew little tiny people. You know what I mean? I don't know.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't know either. What could have worked also is if he just showed him that he grew body parts. Like I grew this brain, which he's going to do later. Or like I grew an arm. Like you don't have to dig up your bodies anymore. Like I have the pieces. I just need your secret to life. Like we need the key to bring this Alive, And I feel like that's sort of what they... They're halfway there. Because that's what I said, like, later, they're going to clone a brain, basically, you know? And I just don't think the terminology was there. I don't think people ever said cloning in the 1930s, and you know, in public, and, like, everybody knew about that or whatever. I I don't know if those were published papers yet in the scientific community. Uh, So it seems like they're sort of... um, Not like they're overreaching, but, like, they have this idea they can't quite articulate, and they're trying their best. And it's also like, well, we also have, like, this special like let's play with this cool new special effect. And you're right, like if they didn't call it out, it would bother me way more. But that's the other thing. It's so tongue in cheek and it's so part of like we know what we're doing that like, yeah, we get it. This part it might not fit in the best, but we know it doesn't fit in the best. But we have to do something to try and get the point across. Like this these are very disturbing no matter what, right? Like it's still a very disturbing experiment. So by the end of it I'm ultimately I'm sold that this guy needs to be put away. <laughs> they should not team up
0: yeah i mean this is sort of what i'm getting at by how i i have sort of shaky feelings on this movie as a part of the frankenstein legacy in the greater universal monster universe right i think those sorts of inconsistencies don't really match up for me in a way that i find completely satisfactory but when i watch this movie on its own as a work of james whale and i see it as almost a parody of the genre which is what he was going for then it starts to make more sense to me and i start to to love it even more and i think i think you're right to some degree if not completely about wanting to show off some special effects a little bit this is a great way to do it it's not entirely unlike the special effects they used for the invisible man i mean they still shot actors on a matte black background and then rotoscope used the rotoscope and, and and matted them you know into the into the shot so it's it's a little bit different but similar and i think it works really well i had to remind myself this is 1935 and they were capable of putting these little tiny people on a desk in front of a full-grown man and i think it holds up incredibly
1: yeah, he picks one of them up and sort of throws it. Like, they, they actually have what looks like a very challenging angle at one point to match up, right? Like, it's sort of like this yeah. three-quarters-over-the-shoulders view. And I know trying to draw stuff like that's a pain in the ass unless you're really well-trained. So, like, I can only imagine them, like, lining up that film a couple of times back into the camera to, to re-expose it. Yeah, so they're still on top of their game. So that's good to see, too. At least these special effects are very well executed.
0: Pretorius has uh, sort of whetted the appetite of Henry Frank. Frankenstein with gin yes they toast with some gin which is quote Pretorius's only weakness they toast to a new world of gods and monsters which man that line gets me every time so Henry has agreed to participate in these these experiments and create new life
1: Pretorius' thing was just like I want bigger ones, right? He's like, right. <laughs> he's like, I made small life, but I can't get him any bigger.
0: Just as Henry is out, like Pretorius brings him back in, you know, with, <laughs> totally. with this brand new uh, experiment. At this point, we're about a half hour into the movie, and we haven't seen the monster for quite some time. Now we're we're catching up with him, and he's. Roaming the countryside, like this is the part of the movie that I kind of think of as like the fun and games of this movie. It's where it really becomes a monster movie. The monster encounters a young shepherdess who is, you know, with her her flock.
1: Oh, let's, let's call it out, Dan. This is Little Bo Peep meets
0: Frankenstein. Oh, 100%. (laughs) This movie has so many like moments that seem like bizarre funhouse mirror versions of the first movie. Like I look at this scene and I think of Maria. Yes. Him throwing Maria into the water and she drowns. Whereas in this, he scares this young shepherdess who falls off of this, like, I mean, I say a cliff. It's really not that high.
1: Good stunt though. Good stunt fall.
0: I was going to say, this is kind of our our one legitimate stunt. You keep an eye out for the stunts more than I do, but I was looking at some of the other moments, and I think everything else is done with a dummy. This is the only scene where somebody takes a major fall, uh, and it's just all uncut, right? Like, she really took that fall into the little pond. And so in this moment, the monster gets an opportunity to stop somebody from drowning, which of course backfires horribly when she screams even louder, the hunters start to gather and chase him to the next scene.
1: That's sort of going to be the poor monsters kind of like day to day it's like it's trying to be like his redemption thing where it's like oh yeah i'm going to save this girl oh no like they're after me they're shooting at me for saving this girl and then it's like i'm going to try and help this person oh no they're they're after me for helping this person it's like they're just conditioning him right like all he's trying to do is do good stuff but like every time he does something good it's misinterpreted as something bad and by the end of it like he just ends up being bad right he's just like no reason live Only death is good you
0: know exactly yeah like every, every every friend he gets in this movie that situation turns on him dramatically you know
1: yeah yeah just constantly just and all this rejection is just oh man the poor thing <laughs>
0: After the shepherdess, he runs into that family of gypsies, and that's a pretty short scene. He just more or less scares them off. But now we have like the entire town chasing after him through this forest, and and we get one of the more on the nose bits of religious imagery.
1: Oh, oh, you mean Franken Jesus?
0: Yes. Where they capture the monster and lash him to a post. I mean, it's unmistakably like you know Jesus on the on the cross.
1: They're crucified basically.
0: Yeah, they put him in a wagon and take him back to town, where he is chained up for all of 30 seconds.
1: (laughs) It's amazing, though. I love the little, like, iron throne they put him on. It's like this crazy bondage chair, you know? Like, I'm looking at it, and I'm (laughs) like, that's some kinky shit.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was watching this and you know, they chain him to this chair. The villagers can see him through this like barred window. And just as the guards leave, there's like a funny moment between the the guards and the the burgomaster. And then like the monster isn't held down at all. He immediately breaks free and starts running amok in the town. And, And I'm wondering what was the point of capturing him if he was just going to break free immediately. And I have to, think that that was james whale like parodying that scenario i don't think we were meant to take that as literally as as some might
1: well also again there's a little sort of justification i guess for their actions is like they don't think he's really a creature brought back to life from the dead they're like just some escaped lunatic nothing to be afraid of you know it's just freak strength like he's subdued don't worry about it and then they're totally wrong obviously like they have no idea what they're talking about and the thing escapes immediately and starts throttling and thrashing and, and just plowing through the crowd
0: which, yeah, leads to, to more death. Um, we get another short montage of bodies being found. I think this is where we see Dwight Fry as gluts, like in a group of people. I can't, I
1: can't believe they didn't use Glutz for the assistant name instead of Carl. I'm convinced know, Carl. Carl's the guy in the, who trying to kill his uncle.
0: <laughs> but uh, in, this scene I, I think is interesting because we get suggestions of bodies. The movie doesn't really show us the monster killing anybody here. We find people finding bodies, right? Like a, a little girl is found in a in a, in a bush.
1: Oh yeah. That's crazy. And it's also sort of implied that like he kind of did kill that family of gypsies, you know, like oh, he didn't yeah. want to, like he just wanted, he was hungry. So he like came into their camp for the food, but it seems like he killed them too. <laughs> right. They, didn't, they don't come back. So I just assume they're part of the body count.
0: There's a great moment where like he's again back in the woods and there's like this little group of young girls who are walking down a path. He comes sort of from the other direction, right where there's this big statue of Jesus again before scaring them off. Like, I don't think that was a mistake to have that Jesus statue there. Anyway, this is like, again, this is like the fun and games part of the movie where the monster is getting to be a monster. And of course, this is when he finds the blind old hermit who lives out in the He finds his hut and he hears the old man playing Ave Maria on the violin. This might be my favorite sequence in the whole movie just because I I love the chemistry between Karloff and O.P. Heggie here. Like this is when the movie stops being parody for a little bit to give us real genuine emotion from the monster.
1: Yeah, this, I think I mentioned before, this to me is like one of my all-time favorite scenes in movies ever. Uh, I think I had actually seen Young Frankenstein before this, so I was not expecting this to be as serious, I guess. I mean, it's still funny and everything, but like, it's so heartfelt. Like, I ended up shedding a tear again this time watching it. And like, that's sort of the magic of this movie to me is like everything up until this point is sort of, you know, kind of zany and out of control. And I think it needs to be to reach... A poignant moment such as this, um, at least in my mind, you know, this comes across as so genuine because it's super disarming to come across this afflicted man and and the monster as well. And it it almost turns into like this beautiful little like parable and talk about the Bible. Like this feels like a Bible story. And like, I'm not religious and like I don't, you know, know a lot about the Bible and stuff. But like this is the kind of stuff like I can sort of get behind, you know, the help your fellow man kind of thing. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 And so in a way where he's sort of making fun of all that stuff, he's also like, you know, I don't just make fun of it. Like I also can express it in like a very sincere way. I just love this stuff so much. And yeah, the monster starts evolving and speaking and eating and mimicry and the smoke and this, it's just such an acting class, you know, because we know that this guy's not really blind in real life, but he's playing one of the best blind performances I've ever seen. It's insane.
0: I don't, honestly have a whole lot to add to that i think you hit the the nail right on the head i love what this does for the monster Um, We've seen him used and abused up until this point. We've seen him kill quite a few people up until now, you know, but this is where we really kind of get to see that he is a good person underneath. And, you know, all he needs is somebody who will treat him kindly, treat him with respect. This scene in particular really underlines how much society does not do that because they take that away from him.
1: You know, this kind of like social commentary and stuff, like you don't really expect to come across it this early, early I guess but in, in horror you know but I mean that's just part of filmmaking in general is commenting on society okay you know this is really no different than something like Romero would end up doing in his movies when he tried to make them political like I feel like that's what he's doing here is like he knows exactly what this scene represents you know and good on him for being able to get it not that he needed to get it past the censors or anything but to get it past the audience for the audience to sort of take this to heart you know what I'm saying like I think that that's a great accomplishment.
0: I mentioned before about the novel Father of Frankenstein and the adaptation Gods and Monsters, which is really what started this whole like rereading of Bride of Frankenstein as being sort of full of homoerotic subtext, right? I don't know that there was a whole lot of people speculating on that before the novel and the movie came out. There's nothing really solid to suggest that James Whale did this intentionally either. I think people who knew Whale would say that none of it was intentional. It was all just like play acting and so on and so forth. But if I'm going to read into this movie anything that has to do with maybe James Whale injecting real life experiences being an openly gay man in the 30s into this movie this is the scene where I would say there's the most suggestion of that you know what I mean because these two could be a sort of an analog for a gay couple in that like they're both outsiders right like they both have something that is unusual or weird about them you know they're perfectly happy to live privately in this little hut and it's only because society disagrees with what the monster is that they aren't allowed to live
1: that way. I think that's spot on Like, and I, I think it would have been unavoidable and it's probably what makes James Wales one of the perfect choices to make this movie being an outsider himself from society and ways that we can't understand, you know, me being a straight white guy, right? Like in his yeah. 40s that perspective that makes it unique and interesting and everlasting as far as I could tell right? Like I think that's why it stands the test of time so much is because it's such his vision and Those things are what make people filmmakers, like you express yourself in your art, right? Okay, and it feels like it came out so organically in these stories. You know, I think you could definitely read into it a lot, like not just this, but all of his horror movies that he made, and probably if we were to watch his non-horror films as well. Uh, But what's really kind of interesting about this couple is that they're like the contrast of the two evil doctors. Yes. Those guys as well are very much um, in a very unstable relationship. Yeah. With like, you know pretty much based on dominance in a lot of ways. Like, it's a very strange sort of S&M thing maybe going on there. Um, And, (laughs) you know, they are actually going to have a kid together, right? Like, they're going to be a... They are a family where there are two fathers and a daughter, right? Right. It's a very uh, progressive representation of family. I mean, unfortunately, it has to be in a horror movie at the time to get away with any of it, but it, it got past the censors. Like, these are things, readings, I think, that are valid that were not on the mind of the censors
0: at the time. Yeah, and, and I don't know that James Whale's intent matters so much i mean you mentioned george romero you know we know that with night of the living dead he wasn't trying to make a statement by casting a black actor in the lead role his explanation has always been he was the best guy for the role you know like watching it now it's impossible to watch night of the living dead without reading into it some things that he did not intend and uh you know that movie now is you just look at it and you see all kinds of things about you know race relations in the 60s and so i don't think that that James Whale's intent matters. I think that there's plenty of stuff here that can be read into, and I think that it's it's valid. I think that you know, it, to a large degree, this film. I mean, I mean, I going to be careful what I say here because uh, you know, as a straight white man, I'm not the the best person to be speaking about this. But you know, I think that there are plenty of people who would identify as outsiders whether it's sexual orientation or race or or for whatever reason, who identify with a lot of things in this movie. And I think that could also contribute to why this movie is so well regarded now in 2021.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely.
0: So let's get back to the plot here. I did not expect such a long tangent on that, but I'm glad that we discussed it. So now we've got two hunters who are lost in the woods who stumble upon this cottage.
1: Oh man, this always gets me because I know while I'm watching Frankenstein's creature make a friend and everything that, that it's not going to end well. I just, you know, like there's, you know, the gut punch is coming. And as soon as these hunters show up, it's like, oh shit.
0: I don't know if you noticed, but the taller one with the goatee is John Carradine. Oh my gosh,
1: no kidding. He's back?
0: Yes, future Dracula, who had a cameo in The Invisible Man, is back in a cameo in The Bride of Frankenstein. We will see him again as Dracula later on.
1: I was looking at his IMDb after editing that episode, and he's in some weird stuff, man. Like, he seems like he was in some fun movies I want to get my hands on.
0: Like, I didn't realize until I started watching these movies one at a time and Watching them over and over, that he was in the Invisible Man, and then you know I just I had seen it a bunch of times before the episode we recorded, and uh, I was like, oh shit, that's John Carradine. And then as I was watching this in preparation, I was like, wait a minute, is that John Carradine again? So yeah, he, I, I've always thought of him as Dracula, and of course, like he's he's one of the legends of classic horror, right? Billy the
1: Kid versus Dracula. That's the one yeah. that i was thinking of because I do know him from from westerns, and that's where I was trying to play some last episode. Like I know he's going to be in a lot of these horror things, but I think he's in ones I haven't really seen, like House of Frankenstein and, and things like that. But I do know him from, like, you know, Liberty Valance and Stagecoach. And, you know, I know him from stuff, just not from this stuff. It, it was funny.
0: Yeah, so they find the cottage and recognize the monster and, man, they uh, just... Ruin everything. The monster in his rage sets fire to the cottage. The blind man is ushered away from the scene. And then the mob is back. You know, they're with their torches and pitchforks. They chase the monster through a cemetery, which this is the most gothic bit, I think, in the whole movie, which we haven't really seen since the first.
1: Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Like, we're back to sort of the look again of the first movie, like, very dark shadows, like lots of twisted buildings and imagery, and didn't realize how much I really missed that uh, over the course of the last movie like there's really none of that in Invisible Man and then like we were saying in The Mummy for me like mostly the Egyptian sort of uh, imagery took care of most of the exotic background stuff for me and everything so it was nice to get like full on
0: Caligari again. <laughs> yeah because so much of this movie up until this point kind of feels grounded in a way that I wasn't not We're used to from Frankenstein right so now we're back to sort of like that expressionist type of setting. This is another bit that was changed because of Censorship. I don't know if you caught the big crucifix gravestone in the cemetery
1: oh no but i did want to mention another moment real quick if you don't mind yeah. just just rewinding quickly to the um the old blind man's cabin there is uh at one point where it fades out and like a cross is sort of the last thing and i think at one point underneath the scene jave maria is playing that's what i mean by there's moments like the sensors couldn't remove with the tombstones and things like that they were more able to probably like control some of this imagery
0: i don't know that the scene in the cottage when it fades to black and the crucifix hangs on for just like a second before fading. I mean, there's nothing in that scene that is inherently offensive, right? I mean, the the blind man is praying to God, thanking him for a friend. And then the fade to black hangs on that crucifix for those of us who haven't been paying attention, right? It's like, "Hey, get it, get it, get it." Okay, fade to black. So yeah, I don't I don't I don't think that was ever up for censorship just because i don't i don't find it to be blasphemous in any way but in this cemetery there's that tombstone sort of in the background and it's i mean it's it's very blatant in the shot it's a crucifix you know it's jesus on the cross this is when the the monster sort of knocks over the other tombstone which appears to be um, a bishop or, or a cleric of some kind in the original script he was supposed to like notice the crucifix tombstone and try to help jesus down off the cross
1: Oh, no kidding. Wow, that's heavy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and and like, I wish that, I mean, there's no way that would have made it through in 1935. But I really wish that had gotten through, you know, like, that's such a powerful image. Um, If we're not already on the monster's side, I feel like, you know, like, that's such a child thing to do, see somebody in pain and want to help. But the censors were like, there's no way we are having that abomination anywhere near our Lord and Savior. <laughs> <So>.
1: <laughs> Which is like insane because that's like against all of the principles of what I thought were, were the teachings of Jesus, you know, like because like even if you think of it like, you know, when when the when Jesus helped the lepers and stuff, or you know, sure. like that's sort of. Frankenstein's monster is kind of like like a person in one of those stories where, like, certainly Jesus would, would try and, and heal him or something like that. So.
0: Right. If you think about it, the monster is sort of a grotesque, like, mirrored image of Jesus in that he is dead, then resurrected, then crucified, you know, and I think the censors couldn't see past the blasphemy of that, the inherent blasphemous nature of that sort of a character. And so, yeah, I, I think that any any sort of connection between the monster and, and Jesus, they were just like, you know what, it's better if we don't go down that road.
1: Yeah, it's hard enough when they're trying not to get Frankenstein himself to stop calling himself God, right? Like, right, <laughs> he's going right. through the whole movie like, I am God, like, I'm better than God. It's like, whoa, like, <laughs> we already got that to deal with. Like, give
0: us a break. And so, this is where The monster finally meets Pretorius. And I love this this little bit. So Pretorius is down in the crypt. He has found a corpse, which will be our female creation. Uh, They also found another casket, which had some solid bones that he could use. This is the only time so far in the Frankenstein legacy where we get like a date. This movie places this story somewhere in time. As Carl reads off of the casket, the woman who was buried there was buried in 1899. Now, I think Universal claimed that the film was set in modern day. Obviously, this is like some weird fantastical storybook version of modern day, but we know that it's probably meant to be somewhere around, or at least somewhere turn of the century, right? If this this body is already a skeleton and was buried in 1899, you know, how long does it take for a body to completely decompose? I don't know. I, I could believe that Okay, we're in the 1930s now in this sort of storybook land. Right, yeah, that's not such
1: a fantastical date. That sort of seems like they were almost trying to play it safe a little bit like we could say this date and then it gives us a good sort of like buffer zone to work with as far as when this movie takes actually takes place you know whether it's sure. 20 or 30 years since then or something like that or even 10 years after you know like they've kind of covered themselves by by not having any modern conveniences throughout like the whole Frankenstein series so that was pretty smart
0: yeah so I I like that we get sort of a, a time stamp on this somewhere we get in this scene one of maybe Dwight Fry's only re- Real joke as he and Ludwig leave the, the crypt they have a small conversation with each other outside like you know we say more of this and we'll just go to the police and turn ourselves in like this is no life for a murderer I love that
1: they're like we'd rather do time than dig up a dead body <laughs>
0: like oh no he says like uh, you know we'll turn ourselves in and they can hang us instead like we can't keep doing like death would be preferable to digging up bodies so Carl has higher standards than Fritz did that's for sure yeah right So now we have a great scene between Pretorius and the monster where Pretorius almost plays like a friend. You know, the one thing that this monster has been in dire need of. He's very cordial with him, shares food and drink with him, which, you know, the monster now uh, is very familiar with wine and bread. It establishes a kind of trust with the monster because we know, or or he knows that this monster will come in handy. And like, this is the beginning of the monster being used for somebody somebody else's nefarious purpose you know like yeah, that's the yeah. like that's maybe my one complaint about the frankenstein monster like overall is that more often than not he just kind of gets used as a henchman and like this is the start of that
1: yeah well this he's definitely getting taken advantage of now right like this again totally. mirror, this mirrors the blind man and the way that the blind man was uh genuine and sincere uh dr pretorius is very much conniving and vindictive and like knows that the creature what the creature 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 is and the value of him and the secrets he holds, you know what I am like, he's got the upper hand here. And there's almost moments, uh, have you seen the stand? Have you read the stand? Have you seen the stand? Oh, yeah. I get a couple M-O-O-N moments from (laughs) Frankenstein's monster here a little (laughs) bit, stuff like that. Um, What was that, Tom Tom Collins? Anyway, I really love that sort of relation between this scene and the scene with the blind man. Also, it feels a little like um, it's going to be like a bit of a catfish too, right? like in modern terms mm-hmm. where where he's like come with me I'll I'll give you this or that or or at least like you know he's promising the creature all of these things and it's just again going to be nothing can end well like everything is just he touches turns to crap unfortunately right
0: and yeah I and mean, we we as the audience we know pretorius is the evil character here and there's nothing we can do to stop the monster so we're like, like you said before when he was at the old hermit's hut like we're just kind of waiting for the heartbreak like here we really know it's going to come because you know of what we know of Pretorius up to this point.
1: It's almost worse too because he asks him at one point like do you know who you are and the monster yeah. basically says I am a reanimated corpse from dead bodies <laughs> you know he like knows he's pieces of different people like that's another one of those modern existential crisis things that could be put to use if they remake this where it's like a guy like i'm parts of multiple people like how am i even myself anymore sort of situation kind of thing and i feel like the monster's struggling to deal with something like that you know where he, he's gained an awareness and a consciousness now so like he, he's learning to talk he's thinking he's got his thoughts straight like he he's kind of becoming into
0: his own right yeah he finally puts his trust in somebody and it's Pretorius and we know like it's just gonna be it's just gonna be used for for bad things unfortunately but so yeah Pretorius promises that he's gonna make the monster a mate for like a, a woman and we and the monster starts to understand what that means for him at one point he, he says wife that's right. Woman,
1: friend, wife, right? Yep. I think those were his words. Yep. Got quite a vocabulary. Stumbled upon a thesaurus at some point out in the
0: woods. <laughs> we cut to... Uh, Henry and Elizabeth, who are now finally married, they're visited by Pretorius, who now wants to make good on his plans to rope Henry into this plan to reanimate a woman. And Henry refuses. Like, at this point, I think he's had time to think. He's settled down, and he's of sound mind again, and has decided he's not going to do it no matter what. And Pretorius has a plan, you know, he's prepared for that, and he brings the monster in for frankenstein to see for the first time since the windmill and the monster talks now and there's again another sort of funhouse mirror moment where the monster tells frankenstein to sit down did you did you catch like the parallel there
1: oh yeah yeah this is a cool scene because right before this pretorius revealed that frankenstein's still alive so the monster's probably like you know, angry about that. And now the Frankenstein uh, finds out the monster sees the monster again, face to face and stuff. So it's, it's cool. There's like a, it's cool that they did that reversal about this, the sit down kind of thing and everything. Cause there is a reversal of power. The shoe is on the other foot at this point.
0: Yeah. And so Henry Frankenstein does not want to go ahead with this plan. Uh, Pretorius organizes a plot where the, the monster kidnaps Elizabeth, which, you know, it's the only way to get Henry to, to comply. While Elizabeth is hostage, uh, Henry and and Dr. Pretorius go to the lab to begin work on reanimating the bride.
1: That whole scene when uh, Pretorius like sort of barges in on their honeymoon, I guess, is yeah. like one way to put it. Uh, there's a couple cool things. I wonder if they were callbacks, but Carl, not Fritz, goes down the twisted staircase again. Like, uh, he doesn't fix his socks or anything, but I feel like that was like a callback to, you know, the first film when uh, Fritz went down the stairs to answer the door. I thought that was cool. And then there's like tons of Dutch angles and amazing lighting and stuff. And just during that whole conversation, though, when uh, when he's trying to convince Henry. Henry to join him and then he's like alright fine I'll just have to kidnap your wife
0: the monster kidnapping Elizabeth is also reminiscent of him attacking Elizabeth in the first film. Like again, more parallels. And so now we we are back at the original laboratory. I can't quite tell if it's the exact same set or not, but I think uh, it's suggested to be. You know, I think we're meant to believe it's the the same castle laboratory in the mountain.
1: Yeah, I think it's supposed to be the same place, but I think it' a, a little different. I don't remember those giant circles in the last lab that we really get a great view of
0: this time around sure the, the equipment itself might be different kenneth Strickfaden was brought back to design all of that equipment and, I, and I'm, I'm sure some of it you know came back from the original film i'm sure some of it was new
1: were there kites in the original movie too like they, he has all the kites flying and i don't remember that in the first film but i thought that was a great touch and i wonder if that was a, a shout out to ben franklin you know, you know, all know the story, right? Ben Franklin with the key on the kite and conducting electricity experiments and stuff. Like, I almost wondered if that was thrown in here as, as like a Easter egg or something.
0: You know, I don't recall kites in the original experiment. The kites just stick out in my mind with this film. That's such a like a fun visual. So now they are in the lab and they're trying to get this heart beating. I think Pretorius is already at work on a brain. I think he has like cloned a brain or grown a brain or uh, I think some some element of his original experimentation with the miniature people is coming into play here. He has made a brain, but what he needs is a heart. And the heart that they have, it's just it, it's it's no good. Pretorius sends Carl basically to like the medical examiner to get another heart. And of course he doesn't do that. You know, he takes sort of the easier way and and straight up murders a young girl in an alleyway for her heart. <laughs> which is so dark man
1: I mean it's just crazy cuz it's like we were wrapping up almost and we're just going to throw this in here too right it's like there's oh man there's one more hiccup we got to commit another murder
0: right and and so like this is where the idea of using elizabeth's body for parts could have come into play i think it might have been a little gruesome for this film that james whale was trying to make they still end up killing this poor girl for her heart so i mean it's already kind of in a a pretty dark and violent place anyway yeah
1: i just figured that they wanted a happy ending and she needed to be alive for that otherwise like the thing would be to use elizabeth and what would be even crazier is if henry didn't realize it until it was too late right like he doesn't even know who's under the wrapping until they take it off
0: right but we don't get that i think it's you're probably right i think they probably wanted the happy ending so you know we get a moment where frankenstein he refuses to to work anymore he wants to know elizabeth is okay and so he speaks to her on what is a telephone but they don't call it a telephone i forget what pretorius calls it but he gets to hear her voice and you know and she's okay she's still being held hostage but it's enough to keep him going and so they continue with the experiment this whole sequence is gorgeous i mean this is aside from that cemetery sequence i think this is easily the most gothic stylistically. We've got very harsh lighting and deep shadows and beautiful lab equipment and whatnot.
1: And the noise, the sound, like I remember in the first movie, the soundtrack was basically electricity noises and stuff. And here where we have like actual music score, they have to sort of overpower that at some point with the lab noises. And we get this new noise that like, I swear that I've heard this in Star Wars or something like this is part of something like this has been used before, but they're like these giant like conductors i guess on top and they just go like burr, burr, burr. Uh-huh. like it's so overpowering like the buzz to it and everything i love it though like you could really i was like feeling it in the room like i was there like the hairs like the static electricity was like coming out of my tv
0: when you compare it to the reanimation sequence in the original film and you look at these side by side this is where i think your your terminator 2 comparison is most apt because Again like you said in, in the first film it's really just sounds like of lab stuff there's no no score here it is an assault on the senses i think the the camera work and the lighting is all much more dramatic and you and you've just got a lot of noise coming at you and i think it's their attempt at going bigger better boulder and, and, and so on i think there's something that comparison
1: i can only imagine how awesome this would be on the big screen you know just sitting there being bombarded and overpowered by all of this sound and sight and all that kind of stuff like it would have been awesome
0: oh absolutely otherwise the scene plays out pretty much the way we expect it to the kites dr- attract the, the lightning the lightning reanimates the body and when they unwrap the um, strip of bandage over her eyes we see her eyes are wide open. We get a little hand movement and we see the the eyes wide open through the bandage. And that pretty much transitions right to the reveal of her standing in the the big white smock and the tall hair with the white streaks. I mean, we we talked about this design. I think it looks beautiful here.
1: We got a couple lines here so we get Frankenstein saying it's alive again. I, I like how I like it and this one is just sort of the one where he's like exasperated. <laughs> you
0: know, he's like yes
1: she's alive and it's just that's it but then we get Pretorius with his line which I love when he's just like the bride of Frankenstein
0: <laughs> like, he gives us our title
1: I pointed at the screen I was like you said
0: it <laughs> <laughs> yeah so we get that incredible reveal yeah so i mean this is the only scene i think only in hindsight right it's because the iconography is so huge in in the world of monsters that we only get you know we get less than five minutes of of the bride of frankenstein in this movie now it serves it serves the story really well that like she's brought to life the monster sees her and and wants to make a friend immediately she hates him and that's the last straw right like it doesn't really serve the story to drag her role out more. I, I don't know. I just wish there was more of her for just because she's so aesthetically interesting.
1: Yes. This is a very compelling character that we don't get any sort of like growth or change or any. you know, like it is strictly imagery almost right i have so many thoughts about this moment it almost feels like this is this is a trend this is like what i used to call the super shredder trend where like a new awesome sort of character villain usually will be introduced at the end of the movie and only be there for like five minutes and then the movie's wrapped up and that's all you get and he's gone you know like this seems to happen a lot in movies and i wonder if this is part of being like sequelitis and like too many ideas but they definitely should have had her for another 10 minutes earlier or something like, I don't know what you do with her because you're right. Like it serves the purpose of the story perfectly just to have her show up and and then be gone immediately. You know what I mean? It's almost like what a waste, but that's kind of the point in a weird way. Like it's almost part of the point is like, she's not supposed to be here that long either. So I don't know. I'm, I'm like, I've, i've got so many feelings about this and then also like what we do get of her character is very animalistic right like she is like a bird or a snake or something like there's something so weird going on with this performance
0: to elsa lanchester i mean this is pretty well documented but elsa lanchester said that she her, her performance as the bride like the hissing was inspired by swans Specifically uh, inspired by the swans she would see on her walks with her husband Charles Lawton. You know, they'd be walking by, you know, a pond, and uh, notice the swans would like hiss at them. And so she—that's what. And, then, <laughs> and when, when, you, when you watch her, like as she is freshly unwrapped and kind of experiencing being alive in those first few seconds, she she moves her neck in a very bird-like way. Yeah. And when you when you think about the fact that she was inspired by swans, it, it all makes perfect sense
1: great choices you know just great to have that whatever non-human because swans people think of as like so beautiful and elegant is the but those things can get nasty they can hiss at you and bite <laughs> you can. and you know
0: that, like, as simple as that inspiration is if someone isn't telling you that all it plays as on screen is like sort of kind of inhuman behavior You know what I mean? Like this is not natural human behavior. The way she jerks her head around and the hiss is a very strange thing for a human being to do. So I love it. It just feels so alien in the moment. Definitely. The more I think about it, I would love to see more of The Bride, of course. like, But as we said, it doesn't really serve the story to have more of her. And I was thinking about that. And I realized like, what James Whale is saying with this movie in particular is that if she were to have more life, her life would end up like the original monster's life. You know, like society is not going to accept her more, any more than it accepted him. And that, that's why we end with the monster saying, you know, we belong dead and, and destroying lab so again because she looks so cool i want more of her but really you know that's her purpose for this story is like just the monster needs to end that cycle you know otherwise pretorius will just start making more and more and more and more yeah
1: that's the plan i mean it works it's working and like they're not gonna stop there's gonna be an army of these things and yeah that that can't we can't have that right
0: some people might not like that I say this, but, like, in terms of functionality, the the bride is more a plot device than a character.
1: Yeah, no, I fi- I think that's fine. I don't see anything wrong with saying that. And I actually think part of the power of the bride and her imagery and everything is, like, you want... Like, look, we're talking about how much more we want her on screen, right? Like, the idea of, their, of not just her, but Frankenstein's monster, too. Like, there's something so alluring about them, but also... They're an affront to science and yeah. being, you know what I'm saying. So it's yeah. like you can't have more of this. Like it's not a, you're not allowed to have more of this stuff. So like I almost feel like there's a point in that too, with her life being on screen so brief. Is like you just get a peek at this stuff. Like this stuff is unnatural. It's not meant to be around for a very long time. Like just be glad you got to see any of it at all. So thinking of it like that, it feels almost like a privilege to be able to see her for as long as we get to in the first place. Like no one's allowed to be in that lab. Like think about that that we're the only ones that get to see it
0: also you know the fact that she is really the only female monster icon in movie history that's another reason to want more
1: seriously for years and years and years and years and years yeah
0: when you stop and think about all of the iconic monsters from movie history they are all men except for the bride. Now, I mean, we could maybe call, you know, if you want to call the, the, the mummy in the new remake of The Mummy, you know, like they, they changed the mummy to a female. I think it's too early to to tell whether she will be uh, considered iconic. You know, the dark universe didn't pan out. It was a failure, but... Yeah,
1: and just look at the rest of horror history too. Like, it feels like it would take a while for another, uh, like, uh, female character to come along and really dominate the storyline, right? I think, you know, there's a couple, right? Like, isn't there like the cat lady or the cat people or something like it's not like this was the only one but this is definitely the one that like is marquee value like you know standing tall on the mount rushmore of horror
0: yeah there's no other female monster who would be immediately recognizable to everyone
1: yeah, not everyone's seen the Wasp Woman or anything, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Right.
0: So I think, like, just in terms of the layperson would immediately be able to identify the Bride of Frankenstein, even if they've never seen the movie. I would say, you know, most of G- Generation Z probably has not seen the Bride of Frankenstein. But they, if they saw a picture of her, they would know immediately who she was. And so, like, it's, it's upsetting that in almost 90 years, we have not had another iconic female monster. So there, there are lots of reasons to want more of this character of course
1: you know they're trying to do these universal ideas again you know today we talk about the invisible man a, a, a quite a bit and stuff um in previous episodes the new one and i heard that this is the next one they want to tackle like this they want to do this before frankenstein maybe i don't know but like this this has been coming up more i feel than others you know as far as like material that they should uh, try and be doing again Because if you think there's so many Frankensteins and, like, the only riff on The Bride is, like, sad to say, even though it's a hilarious movie, Frankenhooker, shot very close to where I live, Uh, The Next Town Over takes place. But, you know, that's, again, that's part of the point. It's, like, Frankenstein's everywhere. Like, let's give The Bride a couple more movies.
0: There were some other attempts at recreating the Bride of Frankenstein specifically. There was Frankenstein created Woman in 1967. That was not too memorable. there in, in 1985, there was the Bride and that was the movie with Jennifer Beals and Sting. What? Yeah oh yeah.
1: So, (laughs) Bowie does The Hunger, which was kind of with Susan Sarandon, which was kind of his vampire film, and that guy does the Frankenstein movie. It's like, (laughs) that's so weird.
0: They sort of use some of the source material in uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein.
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah, they, they do film the whole book so to speak i say kenneth brenna's version
0: right so i mean like there have been other attempts at specifically the bride of frankenstein but um none of them have been uh, quite as uh, memorable as this one
1: yeah and we keep getting stuff like i frankenstein right which has been on heavy rotation the last month on sci-fi channel as of the time of this recording and it's just (laughs) maybe we'll get there someday
0: that's what people want to see. They want to see the Frankenstein monster as an action hero. They
1: want to see hot Frankenstein monster. Like, <laughs> I, call, I call myself Adam now, and I'm sexy as hell. He teams up with gargoyles in that, like gargoyles that turn to, oh my God, Dan, it's
0: the worst. I think that's a good time to wrap it up. I did want to add one more fun factoid. The Bride of Frankenstein is the first Universal monster movie to be nominated for an Oscar. Oh, no kidding which I found surprising.
1: It makes me think that there was no Oscar for best makeup effects until 1940 then, because <laughs> they would have been cleaning up on those.
0: Yeah. I mean, the Oscars were not very old. I mean, they had only started uh, six years prior.
1: Yeah. I feel like it was more of like a dinner because there was no TV to broadcast it. Right. So like it was probably super inside baseball type stuff.
0: Right. You know, I find it difficult to believe they weren't awarding special effects, but maybe they weren't. I, I don't know. I don't have the information in front of me, unfortunately, but I would have thought that The Invisible Man would have been a shoe-in for special effects award. Either way, the Universal Monsters did not get Oscar attention until Bride of Frankenstein where they were nominated for Best Sound Recording.
1: Awesome. That's a great one to be uh, nominated for. Like, that's pretty prestigious because that's part of the new part of the medium, you know?
0: Right. And, you know, it's a shame that monster movies didn't have, like, the respect. Well, I mean, I say, I say like, like they have respect now. I mean, forever. Horror movies have, have struggled for uh, some respect.
1: They're the Rodney Dangerfield of films. There are no respect.
0: I think critics and fans alike, we all agree that, you know, The Bride of Frankenstein and Dracula and you know, th- these movies are incredible. They're not just good monster movies. Like these are the beginning of science fiction and horror films.
1: Yeah. Yeah. These are, these are themes and tropes that are going to echo forever.
0: We study these, you know, like we study the bride of Frankenstein in school. Now, either way, I'm I'm happy to see that bride got nominated for something. I wish James whale had gotten maybe a little more attention considering like he was the guy responsible for these big blockbuster movies, whether they were horror or not. Like he was a big, draw. But either way, Best Sound Recording is our first Oscar. There will be other Oscars that we will uh, get into over the course of our run. But yeah, that's the first one. Awesome. Great to hear. Unless you have anything else, I think we can wrap up. No, I'm good. I'll keep you posted
1: if I ever get that Bride of Frankenstein tattoo in some form or another. I mean, <laughs> you know, it won't be my next one, but it's actually been on the list for quite a while. So we'll see what happens. But other than that, um, this was a great one to come revisit. I gotta tell you, Dan, I think, I don't know, I think it's still the top of my list I gotta be I mean it's so close with Invisible Man Invisible Man's still my favorite character right now but this movie just has so much going for it I love that it's funny I love that it's dramatic I love that it's poignant I love that it's goofy it's just it's so many things it might be too many things but it's um, in the spirit of what I know as a sequel it feels like the mentality of a modern filmmaker trying to do what he can with material he's already done before you know what I mean like it's a really Really interesting new way to uh, put a twist on something he's done before. You, he's at the top of his game. James Wales is just a madman and uh, had a really great time revisiting The Bride of Frankenstein with you.
0: Likewise. Yeah, I don't I don't think I can uh, top that. I think he said it just fine. So with that, it's time for us to get back to the lab. But don't worry, we'll return on Friday, April 30th, to discuss Universal's first foray into the world of lycanthropy, 1935's Werewolf of London. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Monster on Instagram and Facebook at the Monsters That Made Us. And you can email us at the Monsters That Made Us at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Cologne. And Mike, where can people find you online?
1: You can find me on Twitter at the underscore Mikester. You can can find all the other shows that I do on the network at cageclub.me facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter and
0: Instagram and if you enjoyed this episode and you want to support the show, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. I'd like to take a quick second to give a shout-out to Rob Kelly and Tiffany Carson for supporting The Monsters That Made Us through Patreon. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter as well, you can do so at patreon.com themonstersthatmadeus. And let's not forget about our t-shirts on TeePublic. You can find the link for that in our aforementioned Twitter and Instagram bios. For all things Cage Club related, just head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Stay spooky, everybody.